Welcome to On the Middle East, our monitor's weekly podcast on the big events shaping the region. My name is Ambrin Zaman, and today we'll be looking at Turkey, which is going through one of its most tumultuous and unpredictable periods in its recent history. Much of it is ascribed to a single man, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. With us today is historian Nicholas Danforth, the author of a recent book on Republican Turkey. Nick speaks fluent Turkish, has spent much time in Turkey, and is counted among the leading experts on the subject. We'll be discussing whether and how personalities matter in shaping the destiny of nations, in this case, that of Turkey. So welcome to the show, Nick. It's really great to have you on here today. Thanks. It's really great to be here. So I'm just going to jump right in with a question um, based on the wonderful piece that you did for our monitor, which in turn was sort of drawing on your excellent book, The Remaking of Republican Turkey, Memory and Modernity Since the Fall of the um, Ottoman Empire, which I recommend to our listeners. Please. And so you, you start off by posing this question that is really the most pressing question for Turkey today. Would President Recep Tayyip Erdogan actually allow himself to lose an election? And could pressure from Turkey's Western allies help ensure that he does? He sort of, you sort of dodged the, the answer and then, you know. And I'm going to do it again before. here. <laughs> no, but I insist that you you speculate. I mean, what is going to happen here? Well, let me start off by talking about the history, which I do think, you know, actually know something about for sure, unlike the future. Uh, right. I mean, there's always been this narrative going back to the 1950s that U.S. pressure was one of the things that led Turkey to have its first truly democratic election in 1950. Uh, in the, you know, from the U.S. point of view, discouraging, but from the Turkish point of view, very positive thing is that when you go back and look at the record, the United States did not actually put pressure on Turkey to hold real democratic elections. Uh, the government of President Ismet Inanu had been, you know, held dictatorial power for a decade. It had organized uh, not entirely legitimate elections in 1946. Uh, the United States thought it would hold rigged elections again in 1950. And from the point of view of America at the outset of the Cold War, that was great. Uh, this was an era in which Portugal as a quasi-fascist dictatorship had just joined NATO. The level of democracy in Turkey was fine for Americans. And yet to the surprise of the United States government, uh, the Turkish government, the Turkish opposition that ultimately won, uh, the, the Turkish government held elections in 1950, uh, Inanu's party lost. And you know the story goes that his generals came to them that night and said, well, what should we do? And he said, well, we don't do anything, we lost. That means the opposition comes to power. Um, and, it, you know, and it remains a mystery to this day, and this is what I tried to stress in the article, uh, why that actually happened. And it's, almost, it's very convenient in a way for everyone to give America credit for this. But at the end of the day, you did have someone you know, who wasn't a Democrat, who wasn't, who ruled as a dictator for 10 years. And yet, uh, because of I, presumably the sincerity of his ideological beliefs, which, you know, in a cynical time is a little hard to fathom, uh, he actually, you know, didn't just hold elections, but when he lost them, lost them. And so we're in a totally opposite situation here now, aren't we, where you have 
a president, a leader who was elected, you know, democratically, and for a while was, you know, changing Turkey in ways that convinced the European Union to open full membership talks with the country. It was on a hope, hopeful path towards, you know, something resembling a Western style democracy. And yet here we are talking about whether or not we'll, you know, even have elections. So is this down to personality then? Because, you, you know, ultimately you're saying that Inonu himself in the end made that decision. And so exactly. is this about Erdogan the man? What's going on? I mean, and that's what makes this so hard to predict. I mean, A, in terms of, in a historical sense, the conditions now are very different from anything uh, that you've had in Turkish history. Um, you know, I mean, you did end up having a similar situation in the 1950s uh, when after you know, Menderes' Democrat Party came to power, uh, initially democratically, it consolidated its power undemocratically, uh, was on the verge of criminalizing the opposition, um, and you know was ultimately removed from office through uh, a military coup, which is obviously not what anyone wants to see happen again. Um, and subsequently, you know, looking back in 1960, even many of the people who didn't like Menderes uh, have concluded that his the coup that removed him from office was ultimately a disaster for Turkish democracy. Um, so yeah, we're in you know, and then now we're not in a situation where anyone expects that kind of military coup. It's you know, it's unnerving and it's a sign of how bad things have gotten in Turkey. That you've you've heard speculation about that again. You've heard people saying anything could happen. Maybe we'll have a coup, but you know, again, realistically, that's not. I think the way people are it's certainly not the way anyone's hoping this will end. Um, and so, yeah, there's really there's no historical precedent. Uh, and to the extent, as you said, I mean, there are a number of structural factors that will influence Erdogan's decision. There, you know, he may well decide that he wants to steal the election uh, and look around and realize he doesn't have the support from, you know, the military, the police force, people within his own party to do that. Uh, so again, there could be structural things that prevent him from uh, behaving in as authoritarian a manner as he wants. Uh, but there may not be, and what's hard to escape is the is the conclusion that at some level this will be his choice. Uh, and we can't, you know, historical factors or even you know, political science analysis can't necessarily enable us to predict what that choice will be. Well, that's an excellent point because, you know, so often you hear people, um, I would call some of them apologists, sort of claiming that, in fact, his hands are tied and that, you know, this coalition with the ultra-nationalists, with Bahçeli, makes it impossible for him to do some of the things, you know, people think he would otherwise do, like, I don't know, uh, free Osman Kabbalah or get rid of the S-400s, uh, stop being nasty to the Kurds. I mean, again, I think this speaks to what you said about his personality, because this man does, you know, in fact, have a lot of power concentrated in his own hands. And he seems to be driving the decisions. I mean, could we, for instance, say that these other guys out there, or this so-called coalition that's out there um, of various factions, Bahjeli, you know, Perinchek, God knows who else. These are the people, for instance, who are telling him to, to keep interest rates down. I don't think so. Right. And look, you know, there's also the fact that he's chosen his partners. He's chosen his allies. Uh, he made these coalitions because he wanted to stay in power at all costs. 
and so, yes, I mean, if these coalition partners are able to pressure him to, into are able to pressure him into doing anything he doesn't want to, that's because at the end of the day, what he wants to do is stay in power. And for him, that takes precedence over anything else he might want to or not want to do. And so it boils down to them convincing him that these things will help keep him in power. That's why he agrees to do some of the things that he does. Or he doesn't need convincing, as you were suggesting. <laughs> yeah, well, um, this in turn begs the question of who, if anybody, actually has any influence on Erdogan. And, you know, it's been almost 20 years and we still don't seem to have the answer to that question. I mean, do you, do you have any idea who influences him? Is it Emine, his wife, his younger daughter, Sumeye, who we saw him, you know, carrying around for a while before she went off and got married? I mean, who, who does he listen to? I, you would know that better than I do. Well, I don't. That's okay. <laughs> and I think that's if you find someone who does, you should invite them on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, surprisingly, despite you know everything that's happened over this you know these past two decades, I think he's kept a pretty tight ship, hasn't he, in terms of you know leaks and that sort of thing. Um, and also, I mean, for a long time, people came up with all sorts of theories about why he was doing what he was doing and who was pressuring him to do what he was doing. And watching the economic situation play out now and watching how he's pushed for a specific economic policy over the advice of you know, literally everyone, including his central bank governors and his finance ministers, uh, suggests that really, you know, this is his show. No, exactly, exactly, which is why I, I have to say that I, I'm really weary of people claiming that, you know, as I said, that his hands are tied and, you know, he has, he, he wants to do, you know, the more rational things, but can't. I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me, especially given what we're seeing with the Turkish lira now. But getting back to what you were saying about the United States, of course, um, you're sitting in Washington. Uh, the, the conventional theory now seems to be that the Biden administration has sort of adopted this hands-off approach where it's really not terribly interested in Turkey, just wants to keep, you know, uh, sort of things, sort of slapped a Band-Aid over the whole um, relationship and is just hoping that nothing catastrophic happens uh, before the elections and is sort of saving its energy uh, for after the elections based on, you know, the result. Does that sort of sum up the situation or do, do you? Yeah. And to be fair, look, I mean, that's, I've tried to write recommendations for the Biden administration and that's about the best I've been able to come up with. Uh, we had a lot of optimism when Biden came into uh, office that, you know, there could be a reset in U.S.-Turkish relations or that somehow Biden and Erdogan would be able to solve a lot of these outstanding problems like the S-400. Um, that's not, I don't think that was ever going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen now. Uh, the Again, the decisions Erdogan took uh, and the situation in Washington made that a, a non-starter. And I think once we acknowledge that that kind of change isn't going to happen, uh, there's really, there's not that much more the Biden administration can do. Um, it's made 
I mean, you know, at least unlike excited about Afghanistan for a short while, didn't they? Everybody about the Kabul airport and that this would somehow help, uh, you know. Right. And there are always going to be people who are looking for some way to restart ties or looking for areas of cooperation or ways we can work together. But at the end of the day, the interests never seem to align sufficiently. Well, but uh, that's when... where Ukraine comes into the picture and, you know, uh, the sort of hurrahists. Uh, for Turkey and Washington are now, you know, very eagerly seizing on the situation in Ukraine to sort of, you know, hold up Ankara, Turkey as this critical partner in helping face down the Russians. Is that what the how the administration sees things? I think people have gotten a little cynical about the talk of Turkey being able to. Uh, I think people have gotten cynical about the talk of Turkey being able to stand up to Russia. Uh, you know, it's certainly it's been a big talking point for Ankara. It's been a big talking point for a lot of Ankara's defenders, uh, the few remaining in Washington. The problem is, at the end of the day, you know, be it in Idlib, be it in Nagorno-Karabakh, be it in Ukraine now, Turkey's made it very clear that it's pursuing an independent foreign policy, uh, that it's prioritizing its own interests, that it's working with Russia and pushing back against Russia. Uh, in whatever combination of ways it thinks is most effective in pursuing, again, Turkey's interests. Uh, so it's not that we should completely dismiss the role that Turkey is playing in containing Russia. Uh, it's just that to the extent Turkey is actually playing this role, uh, it's going to be doing it whether it gets support from the United States or not. And that, you know, when Turkey's framed this so exclusively in terms of this being Turkey's policy that Turkey's doing for its own reasons, you know, Turkey's selling drones to countries because it wants to sell drones to them, because it wants to make money from selling drones to them, because it thinks selling drones to them is going to be good for Turkey's regional policies. It doesn't need the U.S.'s encouragement to do that, and it also doesn't need the United States uh, turning a blind eye to its human rights violations to continue to do that. Well, I mean, of course, there, there are those who, you know, if you read the Turkish media, you, you, you would absolutely think that Turkey is pursuing, pursuing an independent foreign policy, that it has boundless agency, that it's like a world power, regional powerhouse, uh, all of these things, and that Erdogan is the great leader who has carried Turkey to these new heights. Um, and then you have the opposite argument that Turkey has sort of never been in such a mess, never been so weak, never so vulnerable to, to predators, you know, as its economy, you know, collapses and it's just a big fat mess. I mean, what in fact, where in fact is Turkey actually? What, what has Erdogan changed in these two decades in terms of um, Turkey's weight <laughs> Uh, in, in, in the world? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the best way to answer it is to step back and look at some of the deeper structural factors that are driving uh, Turkey's new approach to foreign policy. And certainly some of them go well beyond Erdogan. You know, from the end of the Cold War, you had people predicting that without the Soviet threat around to bind the United States and Turkey together, you would see more cracks in the alliance. Uh, you also have the fact that Turkey undeniably uh, has become more economically, more militarily, more diplomatically powerful over the last 20 years. <laughs> and it's not surprising that would lead to a more ambitious foreign policy. Uh, there have been changes in the regional order. We're moving towards a more multipolar world. Uh, there's been you know, a huge amount of tumult in the Middle East. You've got wars like the one in Syria that make it 
that make the much more inclusive, liberal, uh, soft power vision that was prominent in the early 2000s seem increasingly out of date. So certainly in this context, I mean, many of the aspects of Turkish foreign policy under Erdogan that most aggravate people in Washington and Brussels, some of them would be happening anyways. The interesting question to me, and if we ever get a new Turkish government, they're going to have to wrestle with this, is what a more effective independent foreign policy would be. Uh, and what strikes me about the way Erdogan has carried out this effort to renegotiate or rebalance Turkish foreign policy is that it's been in so many ways sabotaged by his personality. It's been in so many ways uh, undermined by his needlessly aggressive and antagonistic rhetoric, uh, by some of the own goals that he's had. Uh, I mean, you think about, as it was when Turkey went and bought the S-400s from Russia, uh, it took a long time for the United States to move ahead with CATSA sanctions. Uh, you know, and if you hadn't had the arrest of Pastor Andrew Brunson, the United States Congress would have been a lot slower to take action on the S-400. Now, mind you, I mean, from a military point of view, it's not even clear that S-400 is the best. If you wanted to pick a fight with Washington about buying Russian military equipment, uh, a lot of people who know this much better than I do say, you know, there are other systems, there are other purchases that Turkey could have made that actually would have been much better for it in purely military terms. Uh, you know, even looking from Washington, I think there are a lot of ways Turkey, there are a lot of there are a lot of things Turkey could have done to pursue its own interests that would have been at odds with what Washington wanted that still wouldn't have necessarily led to the damage uh, that Erdogan has done to the relationship. So we're back to Erdogan, the man. <laughs> Erdogan, you know, uh, this very mercurial, stubborn, single-minded person. Uh, I'll, I'll take a step back from that. I mean, Erdogan and the ideological currents that he has both benefited from and inflamed. I mean, I don't want to say this is all him personally, but you know, some of the paranoia, some of the nationalism, some of the ideological anti-Westernism, I think these have, you know, I would say ironically prevented Turkey from pursuing as effective an anti-Western policy as it might have been able to uh, with a slightly more moderate, thoughtful government. By the same token, though, that, that that's part of the the, the persona, that the, the charisma, the you know that that that's that re near recklessness, maybe not even near, just sheer recklessness, is what draws people to him. No, and it's worth admitting that that part of what works for Erdogan is that he actually you know walks the walk, and there have been so many things you know whether it was the S four hundred, people predicting that he'd never actually go through with the purchase of the S four hundred. Uh, when Turkey first initially started threatening to carry out military operations in northern Syria, a lot of people said that they'd never follow through with that. Uh, and it is the fact that Erdogan does a lot of these things when it sometimes seems reckless and it sometimes seems counterproductive uh, that does, that, that gives him that charisma and that also makes that also makes his policies more effective when he's bluffing. I mean, no one, you know, because he actually does some of this stuff, you can never be 100% sure uh, on other issues that he's not going to follow through with it. And, you know, certainly his success up until now has been at calibrating when he really needs to be pragmatic and back down uh, and when he actually is going to do something that, you know, in the short term seems counterproductive, uh, seems overly risky, but in the long run creates this persona and creates this credibility, you could almost say, that makes him more difficult for Western leaders to deal with. Well, I mean, he got to see Biden, right, several times, despite the S-400s. So it's sort of, 
this brinksmanship so far, you know, hasn't pushed him over the cliff. Maybe I'll go back to something that we were talking about earlier, too, and say, you know, I think in both Europe and in Washington, there still is this assumption that, you know, there are going to be elections at some point, uh, that Erdogan is not going to be able to win fairly, and that that's going to be the moment, you know, if Erdogan really does try to rig elections, steal elections, stay in power despite losing an election, cancel an election, that that, you know, precisely because you have such a long tradition of free and fair elections in Turkey, of electoral results being respected in Turkey, uh, that that's going to be the real moment when there's an opportunity, certainly for Turkish people, but also for, you know, Turkish democracy's friends in the United States and Europe to put pressure on the government to intervene, to stand up for, you know, for democratic change. And that, you know, that I do think you'll, if that we got to that point, you know, I don't know if Western pressure would be effective, but that is the moment when I do think for all my cynicism, you'll have a lot of people in Washington and in the European Union uh, willing to push a little harder. On that very hopeful note, uh, I think we have to say goodbye because we've run over time, Nick. It was great having you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. We will return after this short break. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it. This past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. And this brings us to the end of this week's episode of On the Middle East. We hope you enjoyed the show and please do tune in again next week and please do enjoy the holiday season.